Shalom, and welcome to the Jewish Disability Services Together We Make an Impact podcast. This is Adam. And I'm Rose. And today we are excited to have an intimate conversation with a local community member, disability advocate, and professor emeritus of sociology and disability studies at Rowan University, Jay Chaskis. Hi, Rosie. Hi, Adam. Hi, Jay, and welcome to the podcast. We are thrilled to have you here. We can't wait for you to share your perspective with all of those that are listening. I'm ready to go. Awesome. So Jay, I'm going to take the first question. Adam filled me in a little bit about your story and your career. And I want to start a little bit with your early professional life that led you into the fields of sociology and disability studies. Can you provide some insight? Sure. Um, when, when I was uh, a freshman in college, I needed a course. I was I was a pre-law major, and I I I needed to fill a class in. I had one. I was one class short, and somebody said to me, "Oh, why don't you take a sociology class?" <laughs> it changed my life. After the second class, I remember calling my mother on the phone and saying, "They invented this major just for me." That's awesome. It answered a lot of questions I always had about trying to understand human behavior, which was something I was always interested in. During my career, I got very interested in understanding identity and the process of how identities are formed and changed. And that led me into a lot of research on students and how they make the transition from high school to college, Mm -hmm. because many do not successfully do that. And at the same time, um, I was lecturing uh, in a class that had a lot to do with what we called spoiled identity or stigma. And one of the units we covered was disability. And I used to have my students read a book about the deaf community. And that was sort of my introduction to disability. And then later in life, uh, when I was 61, I um, acquired a serious disability as the result of a staph infection which um, led to uh, multiple organ failure. And I was on a ventilator for five weeks and the ventilator did significant damage to my legs and my hands. And um, as a result, um, when I got out of the hospital, by the way, when when I was in the hospital, people were saying to me, oh, you're gonna retire, right? And I go, no, I'm not gonna retire. What do I wanna retire for? (laughs) And um, I thought about exploring what I was going through as a person who had acquired a significant disability. Now, I have to back up for a second and tell you that when I was about 35, I started to get arthritis in my knees and it it became progressive. And um, by the time I was 40, I had a cane in each car because I didn't know if I would need a cane when I when I went to work, I'd get out of the car. And sometimes I couldn't get into the building without a use of a cane. So that was sort of the beginning of uh, my, um, my, my, my journey into disability. But when I was 61, I was, so I was saying, I um, acquired a significant disability as a result of a staph infection. And I spent um, five months in the hospital, including nine weeks in acute rehab, and then did another year of rehab as an outpatient. Wow. And and during that time, you know, um, I had a lot of time to think and I started to really read and explore disability. 
mm-hmm. in, in greater depth than I had before. And I had, uh, this will come up in conversation again, I know. I had a colleague who's been blind since he's six. Mm-hmm. And he was my he was my disability buddy. You always need at least one buddy that can get you on that level. <laughs> yeah, in fact, I'm I'm going to tell you when I when I came back to Rowan and I was a wheelchair user, my wheelchair mentor was a college junior who'd been in a wheelchair since she was 12. She has um, um, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, and she taught me about a lot about how to use a wheelchair. <laughs> Wow. We are friend. We are friends to this day. <laughs> That's awesome. Just uh, a quick academic nerdy question. Sure. Uh, disability studies at Rowan. When did those courses or department start there? Okay, we don't have a. We do not have a department yet. Okay. That's something I. That's something I'm working on as we speak. <laughs> okay. And uh, we're also working on, um, right now we have a center for neurodiversity, mm-hmm. but it's eventually it's going to become uh, the cultural center for disability and neurodiversity. I'm also working on that. So there's a lot of interesting things happening at Rowan, you know, that are in, that are in the works. But at the current moment, various departments offer courses related to disability or in disability but we don't have a formal program or a department yet, but that's something we're working on. Wow, that sounds a lot like what's happening at Rutgers right now. Oh, is that right? <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll catch up after the podcast. I'm sure we can gotcha. make some useful connections. <laughs> so that's that's sort of in a, in a nutshell how I got into it, you know, and I, I started to do research and I published. Uh, I started to publish in the area of disability studies. I did, I did some publishing with... with uh, my blind colleague, Tony Somo. And um, in, in the course of doing all that, I obviously also became an advocate. The university was not terribly accessible. Mm. They were working on it, but it wasn't terribly accessible. And I became um, I became the squeaky wheel. Uh-huh. <laughs> we're used to being those. Yeah. Um, I think it's part of being Jewish. <laughs> is, is recognizing social injustice when you see it. You know, you only have to read the Torah to understand what social justice is. Don't they say somewhere that like we're we're a stiff-necked people? Like you know, we're stubborn about the things that are really important to us. You know, we we follow through. I'll have to I'll have to cite that one for us. Well, you know, I'm I'm Hungarian, so I have I have a reputation already for being stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it, it it says in the Torah, I think in Leviticus, it says, uh, "Do do not mock the poor, do not mock the deaf, do not put a stumbling block before the blind." Mm-hmm. You know, and this is uh, this is thousands of years old. This idea. You know, Jay, I wanted to follow up. You had mentioned your colleague Tony, um, yeah. and I had read an article several years ago about your work in the Jewish community related to the Jewish Abilities Alliance. Um, and and I know in that article, it had talked about something you had already mentioned that you had been, you know, working to informally mentor students with disabilities yeah. mm-hmm. for a while. Um, can you explain? I, my understanding from the article was that it wasn't until about 15 years or so of you being in that space informally that there was a, a formal moment of recognizing that work. Yeah, I don't think it was it was 15 years till it got recognized. Um, at, at one point, um, when we expanded our uh, disability services, we got a new director named John uh, Woodruff, who's wonderful. And he recognized what Tony and I were doing. 
you know, and, and that all just happened naturally. You know, uh, students with disability, for reasons I don't even have to explain, were, were attracted to sociology courses. And in the course of doing so, they would meet me and Tony. And Tony more than, in fact, Tony more than me, and I, I became his partner. And we just started informally mentoring students with disability. And then it didn't matter if they were sociology major or not. You know, if we, if we met a student with a disability, you know, we'd begin to talk to them about, about managing uh, a disabled identity and, and managing uh, the bureaucracy of a university as a person with a disability. So, um, of course, John Woodruff heard about it and he said, you know, why don't we just make this a formal program? And that's what happened. We made it a formal program. It became a formal program. And um, we started, there, there is an honor society for um, students, college students with disability. So John urged Tony and I to start a chapter and we did, and it's an ongoing chapter. That's wonderful. It has to be quite validating. And the other thing is I did a lot of, I started to do research with another colleague in the Department of Education. Uh, where we did extensive narrative interviews with students with a disability because we wanted to understand what were the special circumstances that intruded on their ability to adjust to college. You know, there's all, I had, for years, I had been studying what affects making a successful transition from secondary school to college. And then the question became, well, how is it different for students with a disability? And in a lot of the ways, it's the same, but there are some special circumstances. So um, my colleague and I started to do interviews. We interviewed, oh my goodness, I don't know, 40, maybe 40 students in depth with interviews anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and a half. And just, you know, it was sit, I would sit with them and say, tell me your story, you know, and it was very insightful. I learned a lot about other disabilities that I knew very little about. Like I had no appreciation of ADHD, until students began to explain to me what it's like to have ADHD and sit in a classroom full of students who don't. Sure. It was really, really interesting. You know, it was, I, it was as much educational for me. Well, and that's, and that's the, the truth of being an educator, right? And that's being the a, truth of a being lifelong an learner. Yeah, exactly. Um, I like to, I used to tell my students, a professor who's not a student is not a good professor. Stay away. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, Jay, did you find any commonalities between those uh, individuals that seemed like there was a, a real number one or number two type thing that was yeah. really getting in the way of accessibility? Yes. Um, so I'm going to put it in the context, I'm going to frame it in the context of coping with college. Sure. And the number one thing was time. You know, before I became a disabled, it, uh, taking a shower was 10 minutes, including, you know, getting my clothes off, showering and getting clothes back on. Now it's 45 minutes. Yeah. You know, the one of the other things about, a couple of other things about students with a disability that I, I want to mention. Um, one is that they are concerned about professors and getting an accommodation. They don't know what professors they can trust, what professors they can't trust. Most of the time it's not an issue, but occasionally it is. And one of the things Tony and I used to do was to coach students about how to approach and deal with professors who don't understand disability and student needs. Now we do, now there's a whole coaching program that, that, that John does. So, you know, we, we work to prepare our students to deal with this. Um, another thing is 
they um, they feel the stigma, and especially if they have an invisible disability, like they have ADHD or dyslexia, um, or they're they have diabetes. You know, a, a disability that's not visible, they don't want to tell anybody. They don't even want to register with disability services, and they you know. At every college and university, if a student does not register with the university as a student with a disability, they're not, they can get no accommodations. So, you know, there's all that to deal with, too. Yeah, there's so much advocacy in the space of just getting people prepared for the next phase of life. Yeah, and one of the things that we do at Rowan now um, is um, we run uh, an all-day workshop. Actually, now it's two, two, two days, two sessions for parents and students uh, who are like juniors and seniors in high school who are students with disability to help prepare them. And, and you don't have to be going to Rowan, it's open to the, anybody in the community. That's a wonderful community resource. Thank you for sharing that. It is, it is, yep, it definitely is. And I think it gets on our calendar, on the Federation calendar. Wonderful, I'll, I'll make sure that we uh, look that up and, and make sure to put that in our show notes for, for our listeners too. The associate director of uh, disability studies is Lee Plen, who's Jewish, grew up in Cherry Hill. He's very familiar with the Federation. Wonderful. It's cool hearing your perspectives. And I have something that came to mind and then a question for you. Um, sure. I'm having flashbacks to Hebrew high school for before we went to college when Rabbi Frankel, who was at McCor at the time, taught us how to advocate for Jewish holidays and asking for them off. Mm -hmm. And yeah. those programs are so beneficial. Um, so I'm really happy to hear that something like that is existing for students with disabilities at Rowan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing that I'm curious about is what was the hardest thing to change at Rowan in terms of accessibility, both physically and culturally? Because when I was a direct support professional in like 2017, mm -hmm. I actually had a client who lived in an accessible home for people who are wheelchair users near Glassboro because the campus was so accessible. And I got to experience that with her. Mm -hmm. And I imagine you have a pretty good history about how that area has changed over time. So I'd be uh, interested yes. to hear your, <laughs> hear your point of view. First, I have to tell you that... Um, the administration has been, and, and when I say the administration, I mean, I'm going back like three presidents at least, that um, the, the university has been cooperative for the most part. The problem is that many things that had to be fixed were very expensive. Like we had a building that had no no elevator. Mm -hmm. and we had more than one building that had no elevator. Installing an elevator in an existing building, especially one built in the 50s, is a very expensive proposition. So how did you then approach, you know, making things accessible? Because with ADA, since it was made before the 90s, you don't have to make it accessible, but you want to find that sweet spot for the sake of inclusivity. So what kind of solutions did you guys come up with? Okay, so first I have to tell you that the ADA was helpful if for no other reason than... Um, more students with disability began to appear, especially students with physical disabilities, students with sensory disabilities, people who um, had hearing deficits and uh, were, were visually impaired, people who, like me, had um, 
mobility issues. Mm-hmm. And very slowly, the university began to realize there were more and more people who needed these accommodations. Um, I have to tell you, though, they were more focused on the on the students than the faculty. You know, the faculty. We also have faculty who are, who are disabled, not just me, and not just mm-hmm. me and Tony. You know, and <laughs> and that was a harder pull. There are still some things that I'm fighting for. Uh, classrooms. Classrooms are are not designed for professors with a disability. You know, my my joke was when my students would see me coming through the door, they'd start moving the furniture. Mm-hmm. It was the only way I could get with my wheelchair to the front of the room. And then I, I could only use a half a blackboard. I didn't have another half a blackboard to use. You know, so there were all these kinds of issues, you know. And then when they installed computers in all the, in all the classrooms so we could project stuff mm-hmm. uh, for students to see on a screen, um, I had difficulty using, using the, the equipment because my access to the equipment was, if you were in a wheelchair, it was not good. Mm-hmm. You know, so usually a student would help me. But on the other hand, um, when I was teaching di- courses in disability, having that equipment was wonderful because there's so much material on YouTube. You know, I, I could show I could show an abridged history of the disability rights movement to a class. <laughs> you know, I, it was it was it was actually pretty, pretty good. So I I had to, you know, I let me tell you the story. I think this will help you understand how we made progress. That student who uh, who mentored me, the wheelchair student, mm-hmm. she said to me, one day she says to me, you know, it'd really be nice if the president of the university spent the day in a wheelchair. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so he, you know he, he'd get the idea of what that's like, you know. So I, have, I had a very good relationship with the president. And I said to her, you write him a letter and send him an email requesting this. And I'll follow it up when he receives the email. And I followed up and he agreed to do it. And he also got the person who was in charge of all facilities, our vice president for facilities, to join him as wheel as a wheelchair user. And I had <laughs> I had the pleasure of teaching the president of the university how to go into a bathroom and transfer from a wheelchair to a commode. <laughs> That's, That's amazing. Experience. It, it was it was a wonderful moment. I have to tell you, <laughs> I'm sure eye opening for everybody. <laughs> oh well, the the director of facilities got a real eye opener five minutes into the wheelchair. He he had a manual chair and he's pushing his manual chair along and he hits this big crack in the cement. Uh-huh. And now he's kissing the cement. He got thrown right out of the chair. Oh. Oy. Well, I have to tell you, after that, anytime. Sidewalks needed to be repaired. It got done very quickly. <laughs> That's all I had to do was tell the maintenance crew, you know, hey, listen, we have this problem. And it got fixed right away. So, you know, there were things like that. And also, every time there was a new building, um, I would do a tour of the building and I would take notes. You know, this works, this doesn't work. I mean, sometimes they did crazy things, like they would put the button to open the outer door uh, in a place that wasn't very accessible. Mm-hmm. You know, one time uh, there's a building that has double doors and there's a and there's a, a a switch for each door. Well, after you go through the first door, when you hit the switch for the second door, the door comes out and hits you because uh. they didn't place the switch in the right place. <laughs> you know, silly things like that. But, you know, I would make notes and, you know, and also there was a, an access committee that was that was made up of a wide representation of campus. So I, I could go to that committee and fetch. That's awesome. 
Now, was that committee there before you or did that committee come after you as a result of a collaboration? The committee, I think, was formed after I became disabled, but I can't swear to that. At my age, my memory is, you know, time gets compressed. <laughs> Things that were 15 years ago feel like, you know, yesterday and, and the reverse also. Jay, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, I think it's wonderful that, you know, a space like a like a university, like Rowan, is was asking someone like yourself who's disabled to, to see what they're doing on campus and how they're making changes. But I'm wondering, were they, did they ever involve you in advance so that we weren't, uh, you know, saying, oh, this is what's wrong today because nobody asked somebody who's disabled uh, in advance? Okay. When they build a new building, the architects hire somebody who's a specialist in building buildings and making sure that they're ADA compliant but ADA compliant is not the same thing as accessible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're often not the same thing. I'll give you an example. Uh, my colleague, Tony, was on the second floor of a building and they had uh, an electronic sign, you know, like the big electronic billboards they put up yeah. on road signs, but this one's for inside a building, it's smaller. And he uses his cane, you know, when he's sweeping, the, the floor to see where there are obstructions. Well, the way the sign was, um, his cane could get under that sign and he wouldn't know what was there. And he walked into it and he, right. he got a good knock on his head, you know? And, uh, you know, who, who would think of that? <laughs> you, know, right. you know, there are all these things that affect accessibility that people don't think about until something happens, which is why you want to have a committee and why you want to have people who, who are aware of these things, you know? Uh, another issue had to do with Tony walking on, on walkways and they had benches that were almost, th that were on the edge of the walkway. And if, if, he, if his cane missed it, he'd run into it. You know, well, they moved the benches back. You know, I, I, remember, going, I remember going into the president's office and where they had the switch for the wall for the building where the president's office is was very close to the stairs. And it was just dangerous. If you weren't careful, you could go you could go off the you could go off those steps. And they moved it, you know. I mentioned the president got moved. Certainly. But it's a wonderful, um wonderful distinction you're making between what's considered to be ADA compliant and what is that of a lived experience of someone with a disability it can be quite different. Yeah, later, if you want me to grind an axe, we can talk more about that, so, <laughs> about what, what the law says and how it's not compliant, how people don't comply with it. That's one of my big frustrations in life is exactly that. And when I tell you where, where it's the least compliant, you'll be shocked. Doctor's offices. And just to give our listeners a little bit of context about all this, a common saying in disability statements is that the ADA is the floor, not the ceiling. Yes. And while the ADA is... a wonderful world-changing piece of legislation. One of the issues is, is that it's only enforced through the judicial system, which means there's often lawsuits or threats of lawsuits that have to take place in order for the law to be followed. And that can make the job tricky. So we definitely need some type of infrastructure to help us get to this next phase where we're, you know, higher than just the bare minimum. One of the reasons why the um, ADA was amended in 2011 was because of Supreme Court decisions that were actually um, chipping away at the right to sue and to complain about noncompliance. 
and it's still it's still an issue. You know, in Cal California has a wonderful system. In California, if you violate the ADA, either the state or the federal ADA, and you can show, in fact, that that's what happened, you are entitled to money. There's a bounty. And the bounty is on a is on a scale depending on how egregious the violation is. It's really awesome to me to learn from other states and how they do things and what they do well. You know, like I know Texas has like a whole council of people with disabilities that inform the governor. Um, yeah. Thanks for sharing that, because I just think the more we have conversations about what's working well in other places, the sooner we can get to find what's going to work well right. for us here in right. Jersey. When, I, when I'm in Philadelphia, if I go into Philadelphia and I and I and I can find an open handicap space and I park, however long the meter gives me, I get another hour. OK, mm -hmm. when I visit my son in Los Angeles, I can park in any parking space for free, period. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There are just there's lots of those little things, you know, that that make life easier or harder. Speaking of just, you know, I guess the successes of other advocates that have paved the way, you know, whoever made that law for parking in California, I bet they have a few stories. Um, Adam told me that you had some experiences with Judy Human, and given her recent passing, we're just curious if you could share a little bit about those experiences and how they impacted the work that you do. Yes. Uh, Judy Human was one of my superheroes. Um, I was talking about her before I ever met her in disability class. When we talk about the history of disability, I would talk about Judy's work. Um, Judy um, came and spent an entire, well, first I have to tell you that the university gave, Roman University gave Judy an honorary doctorate, which she was very deserving of, I might add. And I had a little role in making that happen. I wasn't the sponsor, the person who sponsored her is a good friend of hers on our faculty. And, uh, but I, I helped him navigate the system of how you make that nomination. And then she came and spent a whole day with students, with disabled students and interested faculty. And I had the pleasure of having lunch with her, sitting next to her. And then when lunch was over and everybody left, I had another like 20, 25 minutes, just the two of us one-on-one -on -one to talk. And it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. And the thing that it, two things about Judy that impressed me the most, one was, um, her expansive view of of human rights. She, it wasn't just disability rights. What was in her head was human rights, all kinds of human rights, about all kinds of issues, race, class. She had a very expansive view. And I think part of it was because, uh, we don't talk much about this, but about the intersectionality of disability with other things like race, religion, you know, and, and she was very sensitive to this. And the other thing was, she was very humble. There, there wasn't, there, there was not, you know, there was no braggadocio in her voice, in her manner, in, in the way she conducts herself. She was so open to everyone. She was just wonderful. It's a, it's a tremendous loss losing her. And if, if, if you guys have not seen Crip Camp, that's that you have to see that documentary. You know, it was nominated for a, for an Academy Award as best documentary. It's yes. great. We've seen it for sure. And she's one of the featured people in it. And also reading reading her her memoir, Being Human. You know, and I, I think part of her, I might add, I think part of her sensitivity came from her background. Mm -hmm. Not just being Jewish, but, you know, her parents just 
escaped immediately before the Holocaust, escaped Germany right before the Holocaust. So, you know, she had a certain sensitivity and she had a brilliance. She had just this brilliance for knowing how to deal with people and how to advocate. You know, when, when you watch Crip Camp, she's 15 years old and you listen to her and you go, and now I understand where she came from. You know, even <laughs> at 15, you could recognize, you could recognize her talent. You could understand that she was going to become really somebody important in the disability rights movement. It was, it was a highlight of my life to, um, to have spent some time with her. I really mean that. It's one of the most memorable things I've ever done. I really appreciate you sharing that, Jay. You know, because as you said, like she is so humble, but it also breaks my heart that when I talk to other colleagues in rehabilitation and they don't know who she is. So I appreciate you sharing, you know, a bit of your connection with her so we can spread that and hopefully make people more aware of her legacy and help that to live on. And, and interestingly enough, my friend Tony Summo also had the pleasure of meeting her years earlier. <laughs> interestingly enough. And one of our faculty, Brent Elder, who uh, is in the College of Education, but is a, a disability specialist, he was a good friend of hers. They were very close. He's the one that, you know, nominated her for the honorary degree. Well, you know, Jay, you've been, you've been sharing a, a wealth of knowledge and clearly you've been connected to resources both in and outside of the disabled community your whole life. And I'm just wondering now, you shared with our listeners that you're someone who became a wheelchair user later in life. So someone now as an older adult, um, are there any resources, programs, any services that have really been game changers for you in the space that you're in currently as an 80 year old in a wheel and a, in a wheelchair? Um, I would say that one of the most important experiences I had was my rehab, both, both as, as an inpatient in acute rehab and then as an outpatient. Uh, and that was at Jefferson and McGee. And of course, I don't know if you know, but you know that McGee is Jefferson. It's part of McGee is part of the Jefferson system. Um, and the wealth of knowledge that I acquired there has been useful for the rest of my life. I, I'll just give you a quick example of what I'm talking about. I, in the, you're probably wondering why I'm talking about rehab. There are so many people that resist it. You have no idea. And it's to their detriment always. I'm, I'm sure Rose. Well, as an occupational therapist, I love a shout out for a rehab team. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so one of the things they taught me was every time I would have a physical challenge, what I should do instead of sitting and wringing my hands is visualize how I was going to meet that challenge, you know, before I did it, before I did that. And it, it has come in very handy in the rest of my life, because if you're a wheelchair user, you're going to, you're going to encounter barriers. You're going to encounter situations that you don't want to have to deal with. And, um, you know, you, you find a way to do it. You find a way to do it. I, I am so um, in awe of PTs and OTs. They're brilliant in how they work with people. In fact, um, my, my OT was so important in my recovery uh, that we've stayed in touch. And a couple of months ago, we, uh, we had brunch. I hadn't seen Helene in, uh, in 18 years. Wow. And we had brunch and we caught up. I love that. <laughs> and I can't tell you how valuable th that, that is such an important resource. Now, beyond that, 
um, for every disability you can think about, there's an organization. And um, one of the things I find useful is um, a magazine called New Mobility. It's for wheelchair users. Um, it is now owned and supervised by the spinal cord. Uh, I'm trying to remember what it's called, the uh, Society for Spinal Cord Injury. And real quick, is that new as in N-U or N-E-W? N-E-W. Cool, cool. And you can either subscribe to the magazine or if you join um, Society for um, spinal, spinal Cord Injury, you get the magazine as you know part of the membership and you support the organization. And there's always good things in there. Uh, you know, there's always articles about where to travel, how to travel, uh, the latest equipment. Um, there was an extensive article about the problems of being a wheelchair user and, in, and having to get medical services. No, doctor's offices are notoriously, notoriously not compliant, notoriously inaccessible. I have one doctor out of, I'm sorry, I have like one doctor out of six that I can say the office, <laughs> it's, it's, it's my GP, his office is accessible and he's got an examining table that lowers. I can't tell you how many times I've been examined or treated in my wheelchair. Jay, I would say my, my father is a wheelchair user and uh -huh. he, used to, he used to always say, I go to the dentist, but I have to use my own chair. Maybe I should just mail my teeth in. I said, Dad, they're, they're not dentures yet. <laughs> so, um, but he, he had yeah. always remarked on how often he yeah. needed to be examined in his own chair as opposed yeah. to being in a, in a better physical space. Do, do we have time for a quick story? Of course. Um, when, 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 Rowan, when Rowan built um, Cooper Medical School, um, they were asking people to, if they would be interested in being a simulated patient. You know, part of the education process is when they teach doctors is they have people who are sim patients, you know, and they practice uh, doing exams and taking medical histories. And they have a sim lab where they have at, at uh, Cooper, they have a, a simulated lab where they have 10 rooms that look like any exa doctor's examining room you've ever been in. The difference is there are, it's mic'd and um, there are cameras. So the instructors can watch the students. So uh, I volunteer to be a sim patient. And when I tell you the end of the story, you'll understand why I wasn't, they didn't invite me to be a sim patient. And <laughs> <laughs> and they're showing us this new lab that they're just finishing working on that hadn't even opened yet. And I, and I said to the woman who was giving us a, giving us a tour, um, I said to her, well, do you have a, do you have an examining table that lowers for people who are in wheelchairs? And I got that deer in the headlights look. And then she, and then she sputtered out something about having a student, a current medical student who was in a wheelchair which kind of like some of somebody saying to me, oh, some of my best friends are Jewish. And I said to her, well, you know, I'm going to check. Um, and I'm pretty sure that this is required by the ADA. Went back to my office, took me five minutes to find the regulation I sent it. And I believe they installed uh, uh, an examining table that lowered. But if, if you can't get the medical profession to understand accessibility and inclusion, where are we? Very true. One out of one out of four Americans is a person with a disability. So how many doctors have how many patients with a disability in their practice? Right. And they get no training. 
They get no training whatsoever. It's very true, and 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 it's just disappointing because it's a it's a letdown for for our whole society, right? Not just for those that are finding themselves disabled in this very moment, right? And there's research that suggests strongly that doctors do not like treating patients with a disability. Lots of complications that come with it. There's lots of complications that come with it. And just now there's a movement uh, within um, medicine to bring more students with a disability into medical schools, because that's the only way it's going to change. So true. You know, when, when we started, um, when we started that medical school, I was talking to the, the dean of the medical school. And, you know, I asked him about teaching about disability, you know, and he assured me that they didn't. And I said, well, you know, you could teach them now or we could sue them later. You choose. But, you know, that's what they're looking at. Well, perhaps we should invite them to join us, Jay, at the Abilities Expo uh, on the first Friday yes. of May. <laughs> yes. Right. We'll put that in our show notes for everybody. And by the way, that's a wonderful resource. It's the New York. Let me plug it. OK, it's the New York Metropolitan Abilities Expo. It's it's every year in May. It comes to the New Jersey Expo Center in the Raritan Industrial Park in Woodbridge, New Jersey. It's exit 10 off the turnpike. It's five minutes from the exit. And it's three days long. It's a great time. And this year, I believe it's um, it's running Friday, May 5th through Sunday, May 7th. And I believe it's a free, free, free registration, free. correct? Absolutely yes. free. And they even have loaner scooters and wheelchairs if you need one. It's everything you've ever thought about, about needing help with disability and then another hundred things you never thought about. And I will just say they have great uh, disabled artists and performers and demonstrations. So aside from great resources, it's a great place to see, you know, disabled joy. They even have, I think last year, they had accessible rock climbing, which was really, really cool. Yes, they did. And and they had um, wheelchair ballroom dancing, among other things. And my travel agent is usually there every year. It's called um, Wheelchair Escapes. If you want to travel, I mean that that alone. I that's where I met this travel agent was at the expo, and uh, because of her, my wife and I took our dream our dream cruise to Alaska, and it was we we went five days in Denali Park, five days on on the ship. It was wonderful. That's incredible. It was wonderful. I. I, when I before I got disabled, I had this this wanderlust. You know, it was have passport, will travel. That was sort of my motto, and uh, I thought that was all over. And then I met then I met Christy Lacroix, and she changed everything for me. Anything anything she arranges, I know I'm going to be safe. I don't have to worry about it. And that's a big piece of it, right? Is understanding understanding each other's limits, but knowing how to be safe as we venture out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's a huge, that's a huge resource. And I want to mention one more. Yeah, please. Jewish Federation of Southern New Jersey. Thank you. Yes. We would, we would <laughs> yes. agree. We We've would heard of agree. them, right, Adam? You know, uh, l- let me, let me mention something that people don't typically talk about. And if, if you're an older adult and you become disabled, it's, it's different than, a, than having a disability when you're a child, because, um, you know, when, when, when you're very young, you, you may not ever have known what it was like to walk or to see. Well, now you're, you're 
61 years old and you can't walk anymore. Maybe you can, you can walk on crutches, maybe a block, that's it. You need a wheelchair wherever you go. How am I going to do the things I used to do? How, how am I going to take care of the cars? How am I going to do repairs around the house? How am I going to get the, how am I going to get down on the ground to play with my grandchildren? It goes on and on. It's an endless list of things that you think you know, you know, you can't do anymore. And there's a loss and you have to mourn it. You know, I have to tell you that it wasn't until I came home from the hospital and I Googled what put me in a wheelchair that I actually acquired some PTSD because when I, when I started to read about my diagnosis, I discovered that 70% of the people who have what I have die. The mortality rate 70%. And I ended up, I ended up getting some therapy. I really needed some therapy. You know, I had to think about, you know, the way in which I was going to be a husband different than I was before, the way in which I was going to be a father and a grandfather than I was before. You know, I, I loved, I love photography. I cameras. Now I couldn't hold the cameras, couldn't manage the cameras I had. They were too heavy. They were too bulky. You know, my whole life was changing. And you have to you have to mourn those losses and you have to accept those losses and you have to learn how to cope and to move on. Well, how do you learn to do that? Jewish family and children's services. They're there for you. Very true. You know, um, division of vocational rehabilitation. I mean, these resources are out there for people. You know, these resources are out there for people. Um, Yesterday in The New York Times, uh, in the opinion section, a guy named Ed Hirsch was writing about uh, retinitis pigmentosa. He's blind. He became, you know, it's it's a hereditary disease, uh, heavily overrepresented by Ashkenazi Jews, and he's Jewish, and his mother had it, his sister has it, he has it, and he's writing about what it's like to adjust to being blind, and he's sixty years old, you know, and it's a just it's a different experience, and you have to be ready to find the services you need, you know, and you have to be willing to say, I need, I need this. I'm sorry, Rosie, I'm cutting you off. It's all good. I just wanted to plug, if anyone listening hasn't listened to our first older adults episode, we brought in three different companies, uh, Olive Home Care, Fox Rehabilitation, and Jukebox Health. So those are also good places to look at because those experiences are very real. And I just want to make sure our listeners and their loved ones all know that they're not alone. The resources are here for them. Yeah, I, I don't know if Adam told you, but I was uh, I, I went through the FLI. You know, I was in an earlier cohort. So the FLI, is, it's the Federation's Leadership Institute, and it's a, a program designed uh, to engage community members to see where they may fit into the larger system to give back to our Jewish community. So, so I understand the resources that the Federation has uh, to help to help people with disability. Well, I'm excited for, hopefully we get some listeners to check all that stuff out and get some benefit. Um, Just to transition a little so we can start wrapping up because time flies when we're having fun. You know, I think from my perspective, when talking with a lot of disability advocates such as yourself, we can kind of agree on that like utopian vision of where we want the disability rights movement to take us like 50, 100 years in the future. But sometimes I find that we struggle with, you know, what we want to see out of the next five to 10 years right ahead of us. And I'm just wondering what you see as the next steps 
for the disability rights movement in the next five to 10 years? First, much better enforcement of the ADA, especially uh, with regard to the medical profession. That's crucial. That's really crucial. Then there's a cultural thing that's really important. And it's the most, it's the most challenging thing we have going forward. And that is for people to understand disability and to understand it not as a tragedy, but to understand it as part of how nature plays out. You know, people don't realize, and you know, the example I like to give is um, go to a tree and pick a bushel of apples, right? Are they all perfect? <laughs> well, you know, humans, we're like bushels of apples. We all have differences. You know, there's an ideal. There's no one that lives up to the ideal of what people have in their heads about what a person is supposed to be, look like, and how they function. It's a myth. And it's, it's, it's one that doesn't help at all. And I just want a lot more people to understand disability and to understand and to be comfortable around people with disability. You know, um, people, people who are not in my way, I'll be going down a hall in a building and people will see me coming the other way. And, you know, there's loads of room on each side in this hall and they'll pin themselves up against the wall. And as I go by, they say, sorry. And I'm, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me. People get very uncomfortable. Um, I'll, I'll be, I'll be in, a, in a group and people are uncomfortable. They don't know what to say to me. They don't know how to approach me. You know, they, they're afraid they'll say something that will offend me. And we, we need to get past that. This is, this is the most, uh, that's what I'm hoping for. That's what I'm hoping for is that, and that's the beauty of the ADA is it got people out of their houses. You know, I'm old enough to remember when there was no ADA. I never saw anybody in a wheelchair in a mall or somebody with a walker, never. And now we're out there. And hopefully with greater representation, we'll see that. Well, Jay, you know, I wanted to know, you know, kind of just to maybe bring this all home and Rose asked you to kind of see what might be on the horizon, but, but what personally motivates you to remain involved in the disability rights movement, despite the challenges that are present? Okay. It's two things. When, well, I didn't tell you this in the beginning, but Adam knows this. When I, when I woke up from a, I was in a coma for five weeks. And when I woke up in the middle of the night, I was paralyzed from the neck down and um, going through what I had to go through to recover. And I have to tell you, a lot of that PT was very painful. It was not fun. Truly necessary, but not fun. I kept on saying, why am I still here? I had already lost friends. You know, I lost a dear friend to a ALS. And I'm wondering, why am I still here? And the answer was, my work wasn't done. You know, I owed you know, it's, you know, it's, 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 um, it's tikkun olam. It's gimelu chasadim. It's those things, you know, that, that's what, that's what motivates me when I get up in the morning. You know, it's, it's wanting, it's wanting to, to do that. You know, the, the world wasn't created for me. It really was not, you know, Hashem created the world so we could make it better than it was. We have to do that every day. You're so true. And I only wish that other people who perhaps didn't have as many challenges or adversities in life were able to see things that clearly as well. 
Well, Jay, I wanted to thank you for spending the time with Rose and I today. Um, this has been a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to get to know you more and for our community to hear a little bit about who you are. Oh, it was a pleasure. As we end today, I wanted to take a moment to thank everyone for listening to the Jewish Disability Services Together We Make an Impact podcast. We hope you'll continue to follow our conversations. This episode of the Jewish Disability Services Together We Make an Impact was made possible by our sponsor, the Jewish Community Foundation. We thank you for your commitment to making an impact in the disability community.